that we're going to be studying this morning. Out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, or like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are awaiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Heavenly Father, we open up Your Word this morning. And as we do, I pray that we'd open up our hearts to hear it, to receive it, to live it, to be encouraged by it. And we can only ask this all your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. As we journey through 2 Peter, uh, as you recall, our theme is to be diligent in your faith. To be diligent in your faith. And so this morning, after studying these scriptures and highlighting the, the heart of what Peter is saying in the scriptures that we talked about this morning, I have a question for you. Where do you place your hope in this world? I mean, really, where do we place our hope? We had a great discussion yesterday in A.W. Tozer's book, and some of the comments that were made are very much well felt by many of us. As we become concerned with things like the stock market, our investments, especially when you get close to retirement. How many of us are concerned about the interest rates? Because you're looking at a new home and you don't know what that is going to be or how the inflation is going to affect your day-to-day budget. Or how about your employment? Is my job secure in this volatile market? Well, how about politics? Can never out, can never get away from politics. It's almost in everything that we ever read or see or hear. And of course, it's election year. So guess what? We're going to be bombarded with advertisements saying what they can and cannot do for us or what the other person didn't do for us or whatever the case may be. Love political years. Well, how about the upcoming election, Right? Oh, I sure hope so-and-so takes the house, or I sure hope so-and-so keeps the house. Oh, we're in trouble. Or how about the direction of our country? It's moving farther and farther and farther away from the various principles in which it was refounded. You know, I'm having trouble with my words. I told Todd I haven't taken my medication yet. but... But you know, because we're in the world, These things can, at times, have an effect on us, sometimes adversely. But should they? Two weeks ago, we examined the text prior to this, 
in the assurance that Jesus is coming. And the false teachers and the scoffers who denied it. This morning we are getting close to the finishing Peter's second letter to the churches because he's gravely concerned about what he's hearing happening in the churches. These scoffers and these false teachers have come in and they started twisting Paul's words to justify immoral behavior. Why? He hasn't come. It's been at that time that they're writing. It's been 30, 40 years. Where's Jesus? For us? It's been 2,000 years. Where's Jesus? And so they justified immoral behavior. They justified living in lives for materialism and gain. Some of them twisted it so much so that they're, they were resurrected spiritually. So it doesn't matter what you do in the body, which is really a stretch in what Paul was saying in his letters. But when we examine the evidence, when we examine the scriptures, when we examine the promises, when we examine the eyewitness accounts, when we examine the proof of God's word that it's never been in error, it gives us hope that He is coming. Because it's a promise. And for those in Christ who have the Holy Spirit, that's affirmed. Even though at times, we may get stressed out in this life in the world. And now Peter challenges us as to what kind of life we're to live in this world. This world that's fading away. This world that is soon to be judged as we will learn this morning. You see, this sermon is more of a sermon on examination of our heart than it is learning about things like Astrology or the study of end times. In fact, every time we lift up God's word, we are to hold ourselves under its examination to ensure that we're continuously being stirred up, continuously abiding in Him, continuously living out this life for Him and producing the fruit that He's called us to produce. So this morning, the title of my sermon is basically this, as I take it straight from Scripture. What sort of people ought you to be in the days in which we live? What sort of people? You know, sometimes we can just go through life just living it, right? Just going through... Wake up tomorrow, go to work, go to class. But do we think about how we're to live that life that day? We get distracted. Sometimes we get caught up in routine. We talked about that last week, two weeks ago, because that's why we're to be stirred up. But I want to put this theme to this title of my sermon. Where do we really place our hope and trust? Is it in the world? Do those things that I mentioned before give us anxiety? Should they? Or do we put our full trust and hope in Jesus Christ, His return, and our eternity with Him?
So let's dive in. Let's see what Scripture tells us this morning. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away in the, with the war, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here within this verse, Peter is no doubt repeating what he heard once from his Lord, Jesus Christ. You can go to Matthew chapter 24 and hear the discourse that Jesus provides, prophetic end times, where Jesus himself equates himself as being a thief who is coming to return. It's an interesting term. He will come like a thief. Paul, in his first letter to Thessalonians, uses the same term in relationship to the Lord's coming when he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. John the Revelator, he used it twice in referencing Jesus as a thief in the night. Now, I've always wondered why the Lord, why Peter, why Paul, why John the Revelator used such a term in relationship to Jesus' return. Seems odd. Why would he call himself a thief? He's not coming to steal anything. Right? Thieves are not righteous thing, righteous people, right? They're coming to take your stuff that's not theirs. I think there's a commandment that talks about that. Why didn't Jesus just say, I will come suddenly without notice? Which he really did. Or, watch out, I might come at a time you don't know. I'm going to surprise you. Why didn't he just use those terms? I think when you study the word terror, well, thief, and one commentator, and I was really intrigued by what, the angle that he took on this. And I, and I agree with him. And the reason that Jesus used the term was for those who will stand in judgment of it. Let us remember the context of what we're reading this morning in that we're dealing with false teachers and scoffers who do not believe the inerrancy of God's Word and that are twisting it for their own pleasure and their own gain. They think they're living in accordance with God's Word as they interpret that. Remember, we talked about proper interpretation of God's Word. It's very important. But they're deceived, and they're using it. And so one of the elements of a thief who comes at night to steal, it generates terror. By God's grace, I pray nobody in here has had their house robbed. I have not had that experience, thank God, but I know people who have. And when they tell the story, you can see the terror on their face, even though they weren't there. Terror in that someone would come into their home, their place of security, their place of normalcy, their place of routine, and see their home ransacked and invaded by people. And it terrorizes them. They thought they were, they were all secure and insulated from such things, and they find themselves being vulnerable as if there was no locks on their door. I know people that this has happened to, and it's changed their life. Now, when Jesus comes, He will come at an hour that no one knows. We know this to be true. And for those who are living a life of false teaching, and those who scoff, it will be a time of terror for them. Because all they have will be destroyed. Because it is not based upon Christ. It's based upon themselves. 
and their desires. And they will be in the presence of judgment where truth will set the tone. Not their false teaching. Not their deception. Have you ever found something to be, you thought was to be true and then later somebody presented information to you that shows that that wasn't true? How you felt? Imagine that on a judgment level. They will face righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. Perfect judgment. I think a lot of people say, well, God's judgment's not fair. It's biased. No, no, no. It's righteous And it's always accurate. And so no doubt they're going to feel the terror of that. I mean, just, just listen to what Paul writes in Romans. But because of your hand and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who are patient and well-doing, seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Praise the Lord. But for those who are, are self-seeking and do not obey the truth... But obey unrighteousness, they'll just be asked to leave. Mm -mm. That's not what it says. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation, great trouble, and distress for every human being who does evil. Now, that evil doesn't mean just murderers. That evil doesn't mean just those people that rob people. That's anybody who stands against God in their heart that are not His. All those people that say, well, I'm a good person. God's got to honor that, right? And yet don't know Christ in their heart? The Bible tells us they're still enemies of God. That's hard. That's harsh. And I know that. But it's true. It's what revealed truth to me. I thought I was a good person. I was an unrighteous person until Christ. But also remember this. Not only will they be judged, the evil, the people apart from Christ, the people that did not, Surrender their lives to Christ. But we, too, will also be judged. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the part we miss right there. Good or evil. And in evangelical circles... They always focus on the positive, and there's nothing wrong with that. We are going to receive rewards for the things that we do in Christ. They're going to be a little, we talked about this in previous sermons as we walk through Peter. There'll be crowns and jewels. And we'll be given a crown, and we'll take that crown and we'll set it right at the feet of Jesus for all the things that we did in Christ. But it says also for the things that we didn't do well the things that are evil. Now, the Bema seat is just that. In fact, it's, it's basically akin to back in the Greek games where the judge of that event would stand uh, in an elevated position and upon the completion of the game, he would hand out the medals for those that done well. 
but it's also a place where that which we didn't do in Christ will be judged. And this judgment, this Bema seat, is not a judgment of sin. That has been taken care of. That has been dealt with with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are talking about what we do in Christ is that we will be judged, whether good or evil. And we need to remember this. If anyone's work is burned up, they will suffer loss. But they themselves will be saved, yet so as through fire. I think some, like I said, I think sometimes we focus on the positive and, and we, we lose focus of the accountability that we have in Christ. You see, we're accountable to an accountable God for the things that we do. And everything that we do absent of Christ in this life will be burned up because it wasn't in Christ. And that's why we need to be aware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. We talked about that yesterday in the book club. Your, you'll get your reward now in, in acclaim and, and, and notoriety and, and, and that pat on your back and stroking of your pride because you want people to notice you and not Christ. Although we conceal it by saying, I'm just a humble servant. You see, the Bema Seat of Christ is not only something that we should look forward to for the rewards that we will receive, but we must also, it gives us pause as to how we're living in this life that He's given us. There are some who live this life in Christ for their own purpose of gain. We've seen that. We talked about the false teachers. They live out their lives in ego and pride, and it will all be burned up. And But there are some that are on the other end of the spectrum. They've given their life to the Lord, but they never really made the Lord the Lord of their life. They continuously lived their life like they did before, but they cleaned it up just a little bit. I gave up drinking. I gave up smoking. I, I don't curse as much. But I still have worldly pursuits. I really haven't made the Lord of my life. I make decisions based on what I want. I make decisions based upon my desires. I don't put anything at the feet of Christ to lead me. I just make my own decisions. But I am a Christian. I think that's going to be a time that's going to be really tough for them before the Bema Seat of Christ. I hope it's none of us. But we all have the propensity, if we're not being stirred up, that that could happen. You know, I believe the tears that will be wiped away, as John the Revelator wrote, will be in part to the wonderful opportunities presented to us by the Holy Spirit to do the work of Christ, but we chose not to because it interfered with our desires in the world. I think when Jesus reveals, I handed you this opportunity, I gave you this opportunity, I, met, I gave you a divine opportunity to witness to this person about Christ, and you were just too busy to do it, I think it's going to crush us. Really, Lord? 
I went fishing instead of that? I wanted to get home and finish that project instead of taking the time to talk to that person? Or to be a part of that ministry? I think that's where we're going to be crushed. And so the metaphor of a thief in the night should create terror to those who are going to succumb to the judgment. But it's also to be one of caution for those in Christ to be living for Him fully and completely. Now the second half of the verse 10 is obviously a depiction by Peter as to the day of the Lord, as what His return is commonly known. And as John Piper points out, sometimes in the New Testament writers, when they talk about events of eschatology, the end times, they try to, they kind of focus on one little element and they really drive it home because they want people to understand the severity of it or the importance of it. And Peter is doing this right here and right now when he's talking about the heavenly bodies being burned up. Now, obviously, Peter, Peter is not talking about the, um, the heavenly bodies as we know them, the abode of God, but he's talking about the upper atmosphere, the firmament. And these heavens will pass away with a loud roar. Now, it is clear Peter is borrowing from the Lord himself and Paul and John the Revelator's depiction of the end times. And if one was to literally take what Peter is saying by his word, we would assume then that this earth and the heavens will be utterly destroyed and cease to exist. However, under careful study of the word, that's not necessarily what Peter is saying. They'll be destroyed, but then they'll be renovated. They will be renewed, as many theologians believe and as I believe. It won't be an utter destruction. And why, why, why would I say that? Well, he didn't utterly destroy. He destroyed the earth with a flood, but he didn't destroy it to this point of ceasing to exist. And when you came to Christ, you were a new creature in Christ, correct? Were you utterly destroyed? No. You were renewed. And so I believe that what Peter is saying here is that this earth will be consumed by fire. It will be utterly destroyed, but it will be then renewed by God. You know, last year, <clears throat> I, I drive on Highway 23, and I was going to Newtown last year. And if you remember last year, it was an extremely dry year, right? I mean, we rarely got any rain. I was surprised that even crops grew, um, and, but they actually had pretty good crops. But there was grass fires everywhere. You remember that? And there was this grass fire on this hill that you go to Newtown. You just, you know, once you see a parched piece of land, it, you, you, you look for it when you drive by to see how it's recovering, right? And so when you drove by, you just see this parched hill that you've never noticed before. And now, because there's no grass, you see all the rocks, all the boulders, all the old metal that was left there from farmers prior to. And you're thinking, what an ugly and devastating thing to see. But then you go down there in the spring, as I'm driving to Newtown in the spring, and you start seeing those nice bright green shoots of grass and the rains came and the grass grew quick and now that hill is absent of any weeds any thistles it's just pure grass it's been completely and totally renewed and i believe that's what peter is talking about here is that it'll be a renewed heaven and a new earth 
And so Peter is saying judgment is coming. And all that is done on this earth will, be con- will amount to nothing. It will be consumed by fire. First, God judged the world by water. The second time, he judges the world by fire to purify, to cleanse it. And so then what is lasting? If all of this is going to be consumed by fire, what is lasting? Well, he talks about that, and he addresses that, excuse me, in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they were burned. Again, he reiterates it twice. When Peter says something twice that close together, it's an important aspect of what he's trying to communicate. And herein lies, though, is the heart of Peter's message this morning. It's a message we need to hear, not only with our ears, but with our heart. If all this world has to offer, all of its materialism, all of its pleasures, all of its riches, all of its value, all of its history, is all burned up, then where do we stand? Where do we stand? You know, sometimes you you see those people down in Oklahoma and Kansas, tragic, tragic incidents where a tornado goes through a town and just totally rips it a new, right? Destroys every building. And you always see two types of people being interviewed. The ones that are absolutely overcome with grief that they lost everything. And it's totally understandable. And then you meet the other two. Well, it's just stuff. I can always buy new stuff. Everybody in the family made it out alive. Two different perspectives from the same tragedy. If we were to lose everything, how would we stand? How would we answer that newspaper or that reporter about the things we've lost. You know, mankind has always seemed to leave or wanting to leave or build some kind of legacy, don't they? We've seen ancient tombs decorated with the riches of those past. Josh Gage is one of my favorite shows, Expedition Unknown, and he goes into these tombs and he goes in. And all those tombs, about 100 years after they were put in place with all the riches to help them in their afterlife, they were robbed about 100 years later, everything taken out. What did Jesus say about that? Don't store up for those things that will moth and thieves. Moths will destroy, rust will destroy, thieves will take. None of those riches can go to the afterlife. None of it. Pyramids were built several decades as a simple tomb for a king. Legacies written down by scribes and novelists for prosperity and history so that their name continues on. People donate large sums of money so their names can be put on buildings. You know, in terms of of, of today, we're building careers, right? Right? We're building careers. We're building businesses. We're staking out life's accomplishments, portfolios for investments, and legacies that we hope will endure well beyond our time. Well, there's nothing wrong with having a career. There's nothing wrong with preparing for the future as long as we don't put our full hope in them. Last Sunday, I was with my brothers and sisters as we settled my father's estate. That's why I wasn't here. And we had to go through all of the stuff that was left behind. We got rid of quite a bit when my mom passed away, but we still had mementos, family treasures, things of that nature that we had to go through. 
Now, some of these things, as we were looking over those things, especially the things that were given to me, like my father's woodworking tools, his table saw, and his pride and joy is riding lawnmower, which my mom would never let him buy, and he bought within the last two years, and he enjoyed it. And I'm sure they all brought joy to my father, and they were important to him but not now. They're not the most important thing now. And they won't be to us either the things that we possess. Don't get me wrong, I believe in what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that we are to enjoy the fruits of our labor and eat of the abundance that God gives us for pleasure But Solomon himself knew from his own experience to never place value in them as the full means of purpose in your life. And what is the common term that we hear in Ecclesiastes? Vanity. It is vanity. In fact, the final words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes are this. For the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Sound familiar? We just covered that a few scriptures before. After all of Solomon's experiences in life, giving in to all of his pleasures, he ended Ecclesiastes with that statement. With this in mind, Peter now causes us to reflect on what type of life we are to live. And the life we are to live is one of what? Holiness and godliness. Now, holiness, if you recall, is a life that is separated unto God and wholly committed to Him. That's what holiness means. It means to consecrate, to separate your life for a holy life unto the Lord. That which is holy before the eyes of the Lord is to be separated and used for His purpose. In fact, we are to consecrate ourselves, like I said, which means to declare ourselves this, sacred, dedicated, formally to a religious or divine purpose. Every one of you has been given to Christ for a divine purpose. Not just to live out your life as you see fit, having the insurance of the fact that Christ is your Lord. No, you have been given a divine purpose. And that's why one of my favorite books that was written by Irma McManus is Seizing Your Divine Moment. Because that's what God gives you. Divine moments. We have been chosen. We have been given everything we need for a life of holiness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We have been called. We have been chosen, we have been given the Holy Spirit, we have been given gifts to minister on behalf to the church, we have been given purpose, and we have been given a mission. We have been given everything we need to live this life for Him. You know what's all, you know what's left? Is you. Committing your way unto the Lord. That's all that's left. He's done everything. He just wants you. 
He wants you to set aside yourself from this world, from yourself, and say, Lord, I am yours. Use me. And brothers, I know sometimes, we were talking about this yesterday, that could be a fearful prospect. Okay, Lord, what, 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 what do you want me to give up? What do you want me to do? Okay, I don't know if I can do that. I, brothers, you're going in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, not in your strength, not in your words, but in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. So go. So go. You know, we're also called to godliness, which means to, have our, to live our lives with the consciousness continuously of God in everything that we do, but also in reverential fear of the Lord, knowing that He is our judge and that nothing is hidden from Him. All of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our intentions is known by Him. There's nothing hidden from God. Nothing. A couple of guys came back from deployment. I thought it was very cruel that they were talking to a young Islamic boy. And they said, you want a ham sandwich? No. In Islam, you don't eat pork, just like in the Jewish faith. He said, sure. And he ran and he went underneath the table and he ate the sandwich. And when he came out and he said, why did you go underneath the table so you can eat your sandwich? He said, so that Allah would not see me. God sees everything. He knows every thought, every whisper that you have. Everything you've done in secret is known. There's nowhere he is not. I said it two weeks ago when we spoke about the fear of the Lord and that it is what keeps me from doing things I ought not to do because I love my Lord and I'm accountable to him. Now, some people in evangelical circles minimize the aspect of who our Father is in lieu of the softer, the gentle attributes. And He is all that. He is merciful. He is loving. He's forgiving. He is patient. But He's also a God of accountability. And we are accountable to Him. And it is the love that we have for Him and this accountability that keeps us in lives of holiness and godliness. You know, when I was a young man, I made a mistake in life. And it, I ended up in jail. I'm thinking about my dad. I had to call my dad to have him come and get me out of jail. And when he came and got me, along with my brother, he didn't say anything as we drove home from Williston to Watford City, I knew I disappointed him. I knew he was not happy with me. And I knew at some point he was going to talk to me, and it was going to be truth, and it was going to be accurate, and it was going to hurt. And I needed to hear it. The thing that hurt me the most is that I embarrassed him. And I just recently found out by my siblings, as you know how siblings are, right? <laughs> they said unto me, what was it? What is that? A biblical quote? They said to me, <laughs> they said to me, I'm glad I can laugh now because I can get my mind off the emotional part, but they said unto me, Thy Timothy, 
No, they said to me, they go, did you know that dad didn't have the cash? I said, what? He didn't have the cash to bail you out. We told him to leave you in over the weekend. Maybe that'd teach you a lesson. My father should know. I have to get him out. So we went to friends to ask for the money. My dad's a proud man. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of honor. And for him to go and ask friends for money to bail out his son, it broke my heart. But he did it. Now, I don't mean to tell a story to tug at the heart. I really practiced this so this wouldn't happen. But I want to make this point. I gave no consideration as to how I made my father feel based upon my actions that night. None. It was all about me. It wasn't until I was truly saved and I began to understand what love really is, what agape love really is, and what reverent fear really is. You see, reverent fear is motivated by love. And love, listen to this, love purifies fear of judgment into reverence. They are forever linked together. Our motivation to live a life of holiness and godliness is because of our love for the Father and our reverence for Him. And that reverence comes from our accountability to Him. If we love our Father in heaven as we say we do, then our desires would never to do anything contrary to His desires. We would do nothing that would hurt Him. Just like in relationships that you have today, for those that you deeply and dearly love, would you ever purposely do something to hurt them? For the love that God has given us, why would we ever repay Him? Like that. And so we are called to live holiness and godliness. We are called to set ourselves apart and consecrate our lives every day unto the Lord and to train ourselves in godliness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in our Wednesday Bible study and prayer. And the reason we are to do this is because as the world heads to judgment, we will be the ones pointing the way to Christ with the hope of saving some before He comes. Brothers and sisters, this world is on a trajectory of judgment. All that is present will be destroyed by the fires of judgment. Regardless of how one interprets eschatology, in all the end, in the end, they all end the same, and that is a judgment of the world by fire. So, having examined these scriptures, with the question remaining that I asked at the beginning, what sort of people ought you to be in the world in which we live? Will we live our lives placing our hope and trust in the things of this world? Or will we live our lives set apart unto God in holiness 
and godliness as we wait for the precious day of the Lord. You see, because verse 13 says that we will have new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's our hope. And it's a promise. It's coming. It's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you thanking you for your word. Sometimes, Lord, it hits hard. But Father, I'm glad that it does. And I pray by way of your Holy Spirit that, Lord, that we would, we would nurture what we heard today, fully examine what we heard today, and that we would walk in that godliness and that, Father, in that holiness that you've called us to do. Help us to examine our lives right now, Lord, for anything that stands in the way of this godliness and holiness that you've called us to. And so that we, Father, can confess it as sin, that we could tear down that idol, that we could destroy that which hinders our perfect relationship with you. And so, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your time this morning. And I pray your blessing to be upon each and every one of us who has heard it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.